This is the Agile Business Athlete Show, a well-being podcast that shows you how to beat burnout and have more fun. In each episode, Leanne will be joined by special guests who will share their secrets of how they stay healthy and energized and the simple steps they take to prioritize good health. And if they can do it, so can you. And now over to your host, Leanne Spencer. So my guest today is Greg Potter, PhD. Uh, His qualifications make my English literature degree look like a GCSE. Uh, He has an undergraduate and a master's degrees in exercise science. He's also done an internship in the sports science and medicine department at the Rugby Football Union before moving to the University of Leeds to do a PhD in circadian rhythms, sleep, nutrition and metabolism. And in 2020, He co-founded a company called Resilient Nutrition, which we'll definitely touch on in the course of this interview. So I think it's fair to say we've got the right person in the seat today. But Greg, welcome. Hey, Leanne. Nice to speak to you again. Thank you. So let's let's start off with talking about why we sleep. Um, What what do we know about the reasons why we sleep and why we need it? Quite a lot. (laughs) And... I think all of us intuitively understand that sleep is instrumental to how we feel and function each day. But without going into too much detail, it seems that sleep readies or optimizes our bodies for wakefulness. And it seems to positively affect pretty much all aspects of our biology. So just to touch on a few of these, if you go without sleep for extended periods, then your brain function will rapidly deteriorate. So you'll find it harder to focus your attention. You'll, of course, feel sleepy, which is going to make you prone to traffic accidents. Your mood will deteriorate. And there's a close and reciprocal relationship between how you sleep and your mood. You will be less able to read and interpret the emotions of others, and it will probably therefore affect your social life. And then, of course, it's going to affect your performance at work and also some aspects of your decision-making that are involved in things like how rewarding you find certain things, so it increases risk-taking behavior. And if you're prone to gambling, then that's probably not a good thing. There are reasons why casinos keep people up for long periods and ply them with alcohol. If we move on to metabolic health, then different types of sleep disruption, which doesn't necessarily just entail insufficient sleep, but it could be fragmented sleep because of breathing problems. It could be sleep issues related to body clock disturbances and a variety of other factors. Predispose people to weight gain, diabetes, cardiovascular health problems, and also to immune dysfunction, which is particularly relevant in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, of course. And then it turns out that there is something to the idea of beauty sleep. There's been some work by Swedish researchers showing that if you deprive people of sleep, then other people will rate them as being less attractive. And they'll also say that they'll be less inclined to socialize with those individuals too. So those are just a few of the consequences of disturbed sleep. And I'll pause there. Great. Thank you for that. I'd love to drill down into mood, for instance, as a first one. What is it biochemically, if that's the right term, that does does affect our mood on, a let's say, a poor night of sleep? Or put positively, what goes right when we get a good night of sleep in terms of our mood? It depends on the person and... 
I mentioned that there's a bi-directional relationship between the two, which is important to understand because our daytime experiences will, of course, affect our nighttime sleep. And if we feel down or anxious during the day, then that will influence the quality of our sleep and potentially its duration too. Now, with that said, there are a few different things that we understand. Obviously, when speaking about mood problems, there's a huge array of these issues. There are different forms of depression. Anxiety comes in different flavors too, etc. But with that in mind, it seems that the amygdala, which is a part of the brain that is involved in things like fear and emotionality, doesn't communicate quite as effectively as with the frontal cortex, which is probably a more recently evolved part of the brain. It's particularly important to decision-making and overriding impulses. And so we tend to be more emotional in general. In terms of biochemistry, I don't think it's that clear what many of those changes are. When people speak about different neuromodulators and hormones that are involved in mood, they often speak quite simplistically. Serotonin is a happy hormone, etc. And I don't think that things are necessarily quite that straightforward. And what seems to be the case is that instead, it's worth looking at different brain circuits that are involved in mood regulation and how these change in response to different types of sleep disturbances. And it's worth pointing out also that if you take people with different types of sleep problems, insomnia, for instance, and you improve their sleep, then you can also substantially and quite quickly improve their mood. Alison Harvey in the US has done a lot of research on cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, for instance, showing that if you put people through those types of training programs, then their mood will improve substantially in a variety of different mood problems. That's really interesting. Um, what about in terms of energy? What can the positive effects of a good night of sleep do for energy? And, and again, what are the processes there? Difficult one to measure energy, isn't it? It it's very is. very subjective. Yeah, absolutely. But we do actually know quite a lot about some of the bases of energy metabolism and how those relate to sleep regulation. And you can model sleep using two different processes. One is regulated by your body's clock. And this process influences how alert you feel. So after a good night of sleep, you don't have a very strong drive to be awake. However, over the course of the day, the drive to be awake generally increases, although it temporarily dips around lunchtime, which explains the so-called post-lunch slump. And then around the time you go to bed at night, there is a substantial and rapid drop in this wakefulness drive. The other process is a sleepiness one, sleep homeostasis. And the idea here is simple, namely that the longer that you've been awake, the greater the pressure there is to sleep. And as the day goes on, this pressure builds. A body clock process opposes this pressure. So it's not like you just monotonically feel more and more sleepy during the day. But when that wakefulness drive as a result of the body clock drops around the time you go to bed all of a sudden that process no longer opposes all of that sleepiness that you now experience and hopefully you fall asleep quickly 
and stay asleep. And the sleepiness process is largely driven by the accumulation of adenosine and ATP in the spaces between cells in the brain. And adenosine is basically a, a byproduct of the breakdown of ATP, which is the energy currency of your cell. And the more adenosine in the spaces between the cells in your brain, the more impaired various different brain functions are, such as attention, and the sleepier that you generally feel. And as a side note, some people will probably know that caffeine is an adenosine receptor antagonist, meaning that it blocks the interaction of adenosine with its receptors and thereby reduces that sleepiness signal, which is why caffeine will give you a temporary jolt and alertness. But obviously it's, it's no cure-all. I was about to jump in and ask about caffeine and adenosine, actually. So as I understand it, um, although I'll keep this brief because you're the expert, but the caffeine blocks the adenosine receptors and then suddenly they become flooded when the caffeine wears out and then we get this rapid onset of sleepiness. Is, is that true? Or have I got that correct? Yeah, there, there does seem to be some sort of withdrawal effect. One thing to note is that people differ a lot with respect to how they metabolize caffeine. And that depends on a few different things. People often speak about the genetics of this. There are differences in genes that encode proteins that are involved in the metabolism of caffeine by the liver. There are differences in genes that influence adenosine receptors. Mm -hmm. But perhaps more importantly, the health of your liver will strongly affect how long caffeine stays in your system. If you take somebody who has fatty liver disease, whether it's alcoholic or not, then that person might have caffeine in their system several days after consuming a modest amount of caffeine. Whereas for most people, all the caffeine is gone within a day or so. Well, that, that's really interesting. I've never heard that before. And my personal experience was when I was drinking a lot of alcohol, and as listeners by this point might know, anything from a bottle and a half to double that a day, and that was on consecutive days for years as well. Mm. But what went hand in hand with that for me was self-medicating against perceived stress at night with alcohol or possibly mm -hmm. at lunchtime, and then ramping back up into some semblance of normality in the morning using caffeine. Mm. So I was probably doing myself an even greater disservice than I already knew I was because my liver wouldn't have been performing very well, I wouldn't have thought. So therefore slowing down the metabolism of that caffeine. Yeah, and, and you were also probably disrupting your sleep in, in a couple of different ways too, of course. So if you consume too much caffeine too late in the day, and I typically recommend that people stop consuming caffeine by at least eight hours before bedtime, then you will tend to find it harder to fall asleep at the start of the night. And you also reduce the depth of your sleep somewhat. With respect to alcohol, alcohol has quite complex effects on sleep. But in general, if you give people a dose of alcohol late in the day, then they'll fall asleep slightly faster and they'll spend a greater proportion of the early sleep period in the deeper stage of sleep, which people often think sounds great, but it isn't necessarily. And then later in the night, a few things are going to happen. One is that you're going to be more prone to waking up to urinate because alcohol is a diuretic. Mm -hmm. Another is that alcohol and some of its metabolic byproducts seems to block entry into rapid eye movement sleep, which is the stage of sleep in which you have your most vivid dreams. And that will reduce some of sleep's restorative effects. Alcohol is also a muscle relaxant. 
And so if you have obstructive sleep apnea, uh, sleep disorder in which the upper airway intermittently collapses during sleep, alcohol is going to exacerbate that. And that's going to have knock-on effects onto your daytime function. You're going to feel more sleepy. You're going to be more prone to micro sleeps, which is going to influence your risk of traffic accidents. You're going to perform worse at work. And those effects on your breathing are also potentially going to push up your blood pressure, worsen your blood sugar control and so on too. So you are really experiencing a, a double whammy, but unfortunately that double whammy is all too commonplace in the modern context. Mm. Yeah. Okay. We might come back to alcohol, but I want to to talk a bit about the appetite, uh, mm. the, the hormones that regulate appetite and what impact sleep has on those. Yeah, it's an interesting question. And historically, a lot of people have said, well, if you restrict people's time in bed, so instead of having their normal eight hours in bed, they have, say, six hours in bed or four hours in bed, then the increase in appetite that you quite reliably see, although not everybody experiences that, is driven by changes in hormones that are involved in satiety and hunger. And people have generally focused on leptin and ghrelin, respectively. And there's a bit of research showing that if you restrict people's sleep or deprive them of sleep, then you will tend to reduce their leptin levels. And leptin is a hormone that's produced by fat cells that signals to your brain that there's plenty of energy available and thereby reduces your food intake. And you might also increase your ghrelin levels. Ghrelin is a hormone that's produced primarily by the stomach that promotes food intake. And so both of those changes should combine to increase appetite and food intake. However, the research isn't actually that clear. And the increase in food intake that you see, which is typically something like 250 calories each day after insufficient sleep, is probably driven more by a few other factors. One is simply that there's more time awake in which to eat. And so you see people spread out their food intake over a longer period. In particular, people tend to eat a bit later into the night, which per se is probably not a good thing for your body composition. Another is so, that... Sorry to cut in there, Greg. What is no the worries. best uh, gap between eating and going to bed based on some of the science? Yeah, it's, a, it's a very good question. And we could easily do a podcast about this subject alone. But <laughs> in short, there's been a flurry of research in the last four years that's focused on this question. And there have been a few studies of so-called early time-restricted eating. Time-restricted eating is just restricting your consumption of all calorie-containing items to a period of four to 12 hours each day, typically. So perhaps you only eat between 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. That would be a, an eight-hour eating window. And when people use this, and instead of skipping breakfast, they skip dinner, this is early time restricted eating. And they keep this up for several weeks. They seem to experience a variety of health benefits. There was a very interesting study published very recently by some scientists in Beijing. And it was the first study looking at early time restricted eating in relatively healthy young people. So these, these people were lean. They had good cardiometabolic health. And for five weeks, they either used time restricted eating in the middle of the day which is how most people implement it, or they used early time restricted eating. And in both conditions, they restricted their intake of all calorie containing items to a period of about eight hours each day. And their compliance was really good. Interestingly, at the end of the five weeks, 
it was only the early time restricted eating condition that lost substantially more fat and body weight than the control group. And they also had improvements in their fasting blood sugar levels, in their insulin sensitivity, in some inflammatory markers, and they had a, an increase in the diversity of their gut microbiota too. And so when you consider that alongside prior research that are focused on people with relatively poor metabolic health, pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, for example, there's quite a compelling argument in favor of having an early dinner or skipping dinner entirely. The issue, of course, is just that for a lot of people, dinner is a hub of social life. And so mm -hmm. I think being pragmatic, what I generally suggest is that people instead focus on front-loading their food intake within the day. So having a relatively large breakfast and or lunch and then a smaller dinner. Although with that said, I think it's worth spreading out your protein intake relatively evenly across the day. One thing to note is that in the UK and in North America too, people tend to have a lot of protein at dinner and then not much the rest of the day. And for appetite regulation and body composition, that's far from optimal. You want to distribute your protein intake relatively evenly across those different meals. Right. That's, that's interesting for me personally. I have 50 grams of protein powder in a smoothie and three eggs. Uh, so that's a lot of protein. It's about 90 grams of protein at breakfast, mm. much less so at lunch and probably about 20 grams because I'm an egg-eating vegan. Um, <laughs> so it's plant-based proteins for the evening meal, which we get through Mindful Chef. I've no affiliation at all, but I, mm. I love the convenience of that. And I'm not mm -hmm. the cook either, so it is ultra convenient for me. Um, okay, so that, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I interrupted you. I think you were going to make a final point, if that's still a loose thread in your mind. Let's cover that off. Remind me where we were, Leanne. I'm not sure either because I've got, I've got <laughs> caught in the fasting appetite. So don't worry. We'll probably come back to that. But here's mm. one thing before we get into some of the sort of sleep tips and possibly talk a bit about cognitive performance as well. Mm. I'd like to talk a bit about the glymphatic system. Um, mm. And I guess that relates to cognitive performance or mm. decline in this instance. Talk to me or tell us a little bit about that process, please. Sure. In the same way that the rest of your body outside of your brain has its own immune system or lymphatic system, the brain has its own immune system or glymphatic system. And that's this glial-dependent lymphatic system. And while you're awake, all of the metabolic activity that's going on will produce metabolic byproducts. And if those aren't cleared, then it's plausible that those could contribute to some problems with brain function and increased risk of neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's. People often speak about beta amyloid in this context. Now, around 2013, there was some research showing that there's this glymphatic system and it's most active during the deeper stage of sleep. So during slow wave sleep, which is the deep stage of non-REM sleep, it seems that the spaces between many cells in the brain open up. And at this time, slow waves of electrical activity in the brain, which give the name slow wave sleep, change blood flow in the brain, which in turn changes cerebrospinal fluid 
delivery in the brain too. And so what happens is these large slow waves create large oscillations in blood flow, which lead to large oscillations in the flow of this cerebrospinal fluid. And that flow is what results in the clearance of these metabolic byproducts. And based on that, the total amount of REM sleep, or sorry, the total amount of deep sleep that people experience over time is going to have a strong bearing on their brain health and potentially the risk of different neurodegenerative diseases too. And so practically making sure that you have a lifestyle that's conducive to getting enough slow wave sleep. And that's going to be driven by a few different factors, a couple of which we've touched on already. So not consuming too much caffeine too late in the day, being physically active and doing anything that's going to increase energy metabolism. I spoke earlier about adenosine. Anything that's going to contribute to the accumulation of that during the day, which is then going to promote this deeper stage of sleep, is going to be important to glymphatic activity and therefore to overall brain health. Mm-hmm. Okay, brilliant. I think that's a really interesting and possibly underappreciated benefit of getting a good night of sleep uh, is that that boosting or, or even just a layer of, of resilience or insurance against cognitive decline may still happen. It's, it's a big can, isn't it? There's no, no certainty that it will, but at, at any age, for anyone listening, at any age, any stage in life, just sort of trying to get a little bit more sleep and making that consistent priority will just add a layer of protection against cognitive decline. So I think it's underappreciated, but for me, it's one of the top priorities of getting a good night of sleep, very mm-hmm. closely followed by being able to wake up with the energy, enthusiasm and motivation to do what I need to do in the day. Mm. <laughs> I don't want to wade through treacle. Um, Okay, it's a nice opportunity, I think, to move into how to optimize sleep, you know, starting off with the basics and then talking about some of the so-called biohacks. Um, But what are the fundamentals of a good night of sleep in terms of bedroom setup, maybe other things to do in the day and so on? Yeah, I'll, I'll try and rattle through a few quite quickly. You mentioned the bedroom. Think of your sleep environment as being a bit like a cave you want your bedroom to be cool and dark and quiet so on the subject of cool if you get too hot then you're going to struggle to sleep well there are a few things that are at play there you could just open a window at night but that might make the room more noisy if you have air conditioning then you could use that but obviously that has some negative environmental repercussions you could use a fan by your bedside But I think most important is your actual bed itself and the bedding that you use. And to dissipate heat, you are probably better served by using a spring mattress or a hybrid mattress than a foam mattress, because while foam mattresses have cooling pads, it's not clear how long these last. And foam mattresses tend to store heat, so you might feel increasingly warm over the course of the night. And then obviously you want breathable bedding to and pillows that can promote cooling because it seems that the temperature of the head and the brain specifically is important to the quality and depth of your sleep. I mentioned light. You want to get light emitting devices out of your bedroom. If you're going to have them in your bedroom, then it's best to pick ones that emit red light. So if you use an alarm clock, get one with a red display. I think the most important of these is to get your smartphone out of your bedroom, ideally to turn that off at least half an hour before bed. There's been some interesting research 
in the last few years looking at the effects of that on young people. If you take young people who have problematic smartphone use and you have them turn off their phones at least half an hour before bed for several weeks, they fall asleep faster, they sleep longer, their sleep is more efficient, meaning they spend a greater proportion of their time in bed actually asleep. And as a result of those improvements to their sleep, their mood is better and some aspects of their cognition, so their memory, for example, are better too. Then that brings up the subject of light exposure. And one underappreciated factor in your sleep health is your daytime light exposure. And in general, people who get more daylight during the day sleep better at night. And that's in part because getting more daylight exposure is going to buffer you against the negative effects of light at night on your sleep. So if you can spend at least an hour outdoors during daylight, then you're going to get the lion's share of the beneficial effects of daylight on sleep. And this is probably particularly important if you're a night owl. If you're a night owl and you can get outdoors within a couple of hours of waking up, then you're going to help anchor your body's clock early in the day. That's going to help you fall asleep earlier the following night. And if you have to wake to an alarm clock, then you're going to have a longer sleep period and you can get more sleep in total. But then at the other end of the day, of course, you want to reduce your exposure to light in the couple of hours or so before bed. And it seems that overhead light is particularly important to consider here because of the position of these specialized cells that you have in your eyes that influence the timing of your body's clock and how alert you feel. So switch off overhead lights if possible or dim the lights. You might want to use lamps that are at eye level or lower at this time of day. Then there are a few other factors I think that are particularly important. One is your exercise and your physical activity. And I mentioned energy metabolism earlier in general people who are more active during the day are going to accumulate more of that adenosine in the brain. That's going to help them fall asleep quickly and stay asleep. And different types of exercise can improve sleep. It's very clear that both endurance training and resistance training too can enhance how quickly you fall asleep, how long you sleep, quality of your sleep too. The one thing to consider is just that you don't want to do too strenuous exercise too close to bedtime. And while the research isn't that clear on this, I generally recommend that people finish doing any strenuous training by the very latest, about three hours before bed. Mm-hmm. Then there is nutrition. And we touched on caffeine and alcohol. If I was going to give a recommendation, then I would just say, Ideally, you'd want to stop consuming anything that contains calories at least two hours before bed. And that goes for alcohol too. And you want to go to bed neither hungry nor full. You also don't want to consume too much fluid late in the day because you're more likely to wake up needing to go to the toilet. There are a few different foods that seem to contribute to sleep quality too. And probably the best evidence on this subject supports the use of tart cherry juice, Montmorency tart cherry juice on sleep quality. There have been several studies showing that if people consume 30 milliliters of a tart cherry concentrate twice a day, they tend to sleep better, which is probably driven in part by the fact that tart cherries can contain substantial amounts of melatonin. Melatonin is actually relatively ubiquitous in foods. Some foods contain huge amounts of melatonin, pistachios especially, although they haven't been studied for their effects on sleep. And when you give people 
tart cherry juice on a regular basis, they, they clearly sleep better. And that's been shown in a variety of different contexts. And one of the interesting things about tart cherry juice is that it also seems to be good for cognition, which probably in part relates to its effects on sleep and recovery from exercise. So if you have people do damaging exercise, such as lifting heavy weights in the gym, and then you measure the rate at which their strength and their power production returns after the exercise, it comes back much faster when people consume tart cherry juice. And the product that has been used most commonly is named Cherry Active. I have no affiliation with the company, but just saying that because that's the one that's been best studied. What was that brand again, Greg? Cherry Active. Cherry Active. Okay. Yeah. I will link to that in the show notes. I don't know the brand either, but I'll t- I did know that um, tart cherry juice is great for reducing DOMS, delayed onset muscle soreness. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. And then I'll, I'll just mention a couple more things, Leanne. So great. one is that nowadays, stress is, of course, a huge source of sleep problems for people. And so things that you can do to reduce your exposure to stresses around bedtime are going to be helpful. And I generally recommend therefore that people don't watch the news late at night. And basically, if, if you're doom scrolling at the moment through feeds about what's going on in Ukraine, then it's best to do that around the middle of your day or in the first half of the waking day. If you're very busy at work, then that's potentially going to interfere with your sleep. And you might want to make a to-do list around the end of your working day, listing everything that you need to get done the next day and tying up any loose ends so that the next day you can hit the ground running. That's going to help get those thoughts out of your mind. Mm. And if necessary, you could keep your to-do list by your bedside in case you wake up in the middle of the night, realizing that you've forgotten to list something. And for executive types, that tip can be particularly helpful. Another strategy that sounds funny to some people, but that can be quite transformative, is to schedule worry time. You can do this around the end of the working day too. The idea here is that if you're very busy during the daytime, then a lot of that busyness can basically prevent rumination, catastrophizing from percolating to the surface of your mind. But then when you take your foot off the accelerator at the end of the working day, all of a sudden, all of these worries surface and that interferes with your sleep. So if you schedule 10 to 20 minutes of worry time in which you sit down, again, piece of pen, sorry, piece of paper and a pen and list whatever you're concerned about and the smallest next thing that you can do to address that concern. And then you commit to not worrying until your scheduled worry time at the same time the next day then that can help clear your mind of those worries the rest of the time. Mm. And then the final strategies that I'll mention relate to something named stimulus control of behavior. And the idea here is that our brain is very good at creating associations between things. And because of that, certain stimuli quite predictably lead us to engage in certain behaviors. Think of driving. If you're approaching a red light, then you're going to reflexively break. What happens in people who struggle with their sleep and insomnia in particular, is that because they have been spending a lot of time in bed awake, they now associate being in bed with being awake. And they need to retrain themselves to associate being in bed with being asleep. And they do that through a few strategies. One is saving the bed for sex and sleep only. Two is not napping during the daytime. Naps can be very helpful 
and they can frankly be life-saving in some contexts. I wouldn't recommend that if you're a shift worker and you feel sleepy at the end of your shift, then you, you shouldn't nap before driving home. You absolutely should. But for the rest of us, if, if you can avoid napping in the middle of the day, then that's going to help you fall asleep quickly at night and stay asleep. And then apply the 15-minute rule. The idea here is that if you've been in bed awake for roughly 15 minutes and you shouldn't be watching the clock, just go by your own sense of time passing, then get out of bed, go to a different room, do something relaxing in dim light until you feel sleepy again. So you could go and read a book. You could watch something kind of boring on television, just something that's enjoyable, but not too stimulating. And again, only return to bed when you're actually sleepy. And then finally, for people who have insomnia, I think setting an alarm in the morning can be really helpful because what that's going to do is it's going to help regularize your body's clock. It's going to influence when you're exposed to light each day and it's going to improve the regularity of your sleep, which is going to be conducive to the quality of your sleep. But it's also going to ensure that you build lots of sleep pressure during the day, which is, again, going to then help you fall asleep quickly and stay asleep the following night. Great. Thank you for that. I want to follow up on one thing, which is the worry time. I haven't heard that before. I love it. Um, I was just thinking about, as, as you do, think about, well, do I do that? Would I benefit from that while I'm listening to you? And what I do make a point of doing, um, which might be helpful for listeners as well, is, is occasionally just daydreaming out the window during the working mm. day. Mm-hmm. Not for very long, just for a minute or so. For if, for example, I've logged on at 10.59 for an 11 o'clock Zoom and the person I'm waiting for is, is a couple of minutes to join. I'll just let my eyes drift out the windows. I've got an office with quite a bit of natural light. Just look mm-hmm. out there and daydream a little bit. I'm still in the moment. I know when that person comes online, who it is I'm talking to and why I'm talking to them. Mm-hmm. But I find that that's, it's not quite what you're saying, but it's that, it's that little dropout. It's that sliver of recovery. It's that little break, isn't it? It's, it's um, hugely important. You mentioned a couple of things there that I think matter. One is if you are stuck indoors, it's best to sit by the window There was an interesting study of office workers a few years ago showing that compared to people who don't have access to windows, if you give people access to windows, then they sleep better at night. So sit by the window if at all possible. And that's especially important if the amount of time you spend outdoors is constrained. But then second, that mind wandering that you mentioned is really important to brain health. I think this is underappreciated. It's not that well studied just yet, but I also suspect that this is very important to sleep too. So if you're task negative, you're not focused on one thing at a time, then activity in these midline brain regions named the default mode network increases. And that gives rise to that mind wandering that you mentioned. These are often self-reflective thoughts. Now, when that happens, it seems to contribute to creativity And it also might have some effect on tagging different concerns and things that you're processing for subsequent processing during sleep. And if you're constantly bombarded by information, maybe you're listening to a podcast, maybe you're looking at your phone, maybe you're speaking to someone, then you don't get that activity during the daytime. And my suspicion is that that's more likely to then lead you to ruminate excessively at night, which is going to interfere with your sleep. So I think that time you spend outdoors, if you can spend some of it letting your mind wander, then you're going to sleep better than you otherwise would. And personally, I I don't speak about this normally, but one of the strategies that I use and 
daily life is to go for at least one walk each day in which my mind is just wandering. I'm not listening to anything. I'm not watching anything. I'm just trying to be present, taking what's going on around me and letting my mind go wherever it wants to go. Yeah, I do a lot of walking with my dog, who is, funny enough, sleeping over there at the moment. Um, but I've, I'm very rarely off my uh, noise-cancelling headphones, and I wonder if I should take a walk every now and again without them, because sometimes I find I've tuned out as well, and I'm, you know, I'm neither enjoying the benefit of the walk, hearing the birdsong, hearing the sounds of nature, or listening to, to actually what's going on in my ears. So mm. that's interesting. I think particularly pertinent at the moment is that whole of daydream worry time uh, ideas, because in the last two years, people stopped commuting, most mm. people anyway. Mm. And that, for some people, might have been... I used to do an hour and a quarter drive out to Maidenhead and back 15, 20 years ago. Um, but I, I really enjoyed that time. People would say to me, you know, how can you cope with that sort of commute? Well, you're getting ready for the day on the drive out and decompressing, daydreaming, ringing friends. I'm obviously I'm behind a wheel, but on the commute back. Mm. That might have been a lot of the time that people did their prep or their debrief internally, which mm. we don't have anymore. So I think more so now than ever, that's really important. Um, we've got a few minutes left, and I'd love to talk a bit more about the role of nutrition within sleep and circadian rhythm. Um, mm. You kindly sent me a couple of sachets of the Resilient Nutrition um, powder, which is mm. uh, it's a sort of chocolate-based, uh, heavily reinforced with some really good stuff that does contribute to sleep. I think there's tryptophan in there and there's some, is there L-theanine in there? Talk us through the ingredients and, and, and briefly how the idea came about and where it sits within the world of sleep. Yeah, so the way that most companies go about designing nutrition products to address sleep is giving people supplements to help them sleep. There's a variety of these products and some are helpful in some instances, some are helpful in others, some frankly aren't very helpful in any. And rather than making a product designed to help sleep, my thinking was as follows. A lot of people struggle to sleep. And what's frustrating is that they struggle to sleep before events that are particularly important to them, before big presentations, before weddings, and so on before key athletic competitions. And so wouldn't it be great if there was something you could take at the start of your day to help bring your performance back to baseline if you haven't slept well? And it would be especially helpful if even if you had slept well, it could take your performance above its baseline level. And so with that in mind, we formulated this product, which is named Switch On, that you can find at resilientnutrition.com. And what it is, is a cocoa-based drink that you consume at the start of your day. Typically, people will have it about an hour before breakfast, but you can just have it an hour before any activity that's particularly important to you. And it's designed to support all different bodily systems and specifically to target how those are negatively affected by different forms of sleep disruption. And so just to touch on a few ingredients that are in there, one, of course, is caffeine, which I mentioned earlier. There's a modest dose of caffeine in it, and it's less than what you would typically get in a store-bought Americano, but it's more than what you would get in an instant coffee. There is creatine monohydrate, which most people think of as a muscle-building supplement because it is a fantastic muscle-building supplement. One of the interesting things about creatine, though, is that what it does is it reduces the accumulation of adenosine and ATP in the brain during wakefulness. And I mentioned earlier the fact that those promote sleep 
and sleepiness. And as a result of that, creatine supplementation actually seems to reduce how much sleep people need. And it helps them better cope with the negative effects of sleep disruption too. This has been shown both on cognition, but also on physical performance too. And there is some green coffee extract in there and ginger in it too, both of which have been shown to help with body composition, accelerating fat burning, which is something that's negatively affected by poor sleep. Ginger can also help with musculoskeletal pain. And if you haven't had enough sleep, then it's likely that that will amplify any pain that you're experiencing. There is vitamin C in there, which is designed to support the different branches of the immune system, both of which compromised by sleep loss. And there is also inulin, which feeds some organisms in the gut. And as a result of that, those produce short chain fatty acids. Those fatty acids contribute to things like how resilient your gut lining is. And so in that way, inulin can promote the growth of some of these beneficial microorganisms, but also help with the integrity of the gut barrier, which is something that's compromised by sleep deprivation. And I could go on, but the idea is, is that this is a comprehensive product and it has effects that you'll feel both acutely, but also that accumulate with repeated use. Brilliant. Okay. And that's at resilientnutrition.com and the product's called Switch On. So I'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, I found it to be delicious. I really did. Um, it's got a real chocolatey taste, which I love. Knowing uh, that it's got all those good ingredients for, for positive sleep it is good to know as well. Um, so yeah, I'd recommend giving that a try. Um, I mentioned biohacks. We've got very little time, maybe three minutes, but would there be one or two biohacks that that you think are reasonably accessible for a busy professional who may not even know what biohacking means. It's the use of science and technology to improve your physiology, basically. Um, are there a couple, I've got one in mind as well, that you would really recommend that people, people look at if perhaps they're doing some of these basics already, but they'd like to get a little bit more sleep or better quality sleep? What's yours, Leanne? I'm going to pass this back to you quickly. Okay, yeah. Uh, blue light blocking glasses. So it's mm -hmm. quite mainstream in terms of a biohack and these are simply glasses that have blue tints within them that that block that frequency of light called blue light which comes from tv screens um you know, overhead lighting and so on i would count that as a biohack and i think that's really accessible you can even get prescription glasses tinted to protect against this mm. this frequency of light um I, there's a, there's another one i've got in mind as well but we can go you then yeah. me <laughs> so so I'll offer a couple and I'll just preface my answer by saying that the behavioral strategies that I mentioned so far are more important as are the cognitive yeah. ones. But with that in mind, when I think of biohacking, I generally think of supplementation and technology and on the subject of technology, I, th I think there are a few that are very interesting. And if we put aside traditional sleep medicine interventions, such as continuous positive airway pressure or CPAP for sleep apnea, then I think there are some that are quite interesting in the context of insomnia. One is forehead cooling. I mentioned earlier that you want your brain temperature to drop around the time that you go to bed if you want to sleep well. And you can facilitate that by using a forehead cooling device. And Eric Nofsinger, who's a fantastic sleep scientist, has created a device named EBB, e -B -B, which you strap around your forehead and it basically just supplies a cooling fluid 
to this pad that rests on your forehead and it therefore keeps your brain temperature down during sleep. And it comes with an accompanying cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia program. And when people use this device, they tend to sleep better. That's been shown in a few different populations, including menopause or women. So that'd be one of them. And then on the subject of supplements, it's really important to note that the, the best supplements depend on your sleep phenotype, what the source of your sleep disturbances is, how your sleep is on a regular basis. But with that said, I think a couple that are relatively helpful are L-theanine. L-theanine is amino acid that's in tea and it has been consistently shown to help reduce feelings of stress and physiological stress responses to different stresses. It's got a fantastic safety profile, tastes relatively neutral. You take 200 to 400 milligrams of that day per day, either as one or two doses, then you might find that it helps a little bit with any stress-related sleep issues. And then another one that I like is ashwagandha. And that is a herb that's been used for thousands of years in countries such as India. And again, it helps reduce responses to different types of stresses and its effects accumulate over time. The best studied form of ashwagandha is KSM 66 ashwagandha, which is generally taken either as 300 milligrams twice a day or 600 milligrams once a day. And it has been shown to help with sleep disturbances in particular in insomnia. But one of the interesting things about ashwagandha is that it seems to have a variety of different positive effects on health and performance. And some of these relate to exercise. So when people regularly consume ashwagandha, they tend to slightly push up their VO2 max, which is a determinant of endurance exercise performance. And they also tend to gain muscle mass and strength faster during resistance training than people who consume a placebo. They appear to reduce their body fat faster too. So if you're interested in your exercise performance, then I think ashwagandha comes into its own. Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah. I mean, we, I won't go into mine. They're light related. Although I would say one that's really accessible, arguably not a biohack, is a Lumi lamp mm. um, to mimic that sunrise and sunset at the beginning and the end of the day. That mm. That is a lovely way to wake up and it's a nice way to go to sleep with the light dimming as you read. Uh, I've got some birdsong or cicada sort of noise in the background that goes with it as well. So it's mm. uh, manufactured by Philips, but I'm not sure if we count that as a biohack. But Greg, that's been really, really interesting. Thanks so much for giving me your time and, and, and sharing your expertise and your ideas with us. Um, we will link out to Resilient Nutrition and all the very best with that. And otherwise, thank you very much for being on the show. Pleasure. Thanks, Leanne. Want more? Take our Wellbeing at Work company scorecard and get a free personalised report full of actionable insights. Or if you're interested in finding out what your health IQ is, take our health IQ scorecard. Links can be found in the show notes. And finally, if you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment to share and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you.